I hear the nightingale's song. A warm sun, mild breeze. The willows are green along the bank. No ox can hide here. What artist could paint that huge head, those majestic horns? Um, in a way, this means, I hope um, at this point in our retreat, you are, uh, we're all enjoying the taste of our life. which, uh, you know, can't be pinned down to bitter or sweet, sour or salty, it being all of those things, and also no taste. When we sit together like this, it's, uh, it's so obvious that uh, there's no ox hiding someplace. In the midst of the uh, whirl of our activities, uh, things may seem more ambiguous. But please let the uh, you know experience of uh, our profound human stillness be the touchstone, so that um, when things are noisier, uh, your your body remembers stillness. Beyond that, it's a little challenging uh, because uh, we're also taught even motion is still. This is, uh, you know, an aspect of, a critical aspect of Buddha's insight. And even in movement, there is stillness. In silence, there is sound. In sound, there is silence. And this is the... uh, ever-changing face of reality. And uh, retreat, particularly, you know, Sashin and other times of formal practice is uh, this great time of moving in rhythm with that. Even if we're not sure we hear it, but perhaps we trust that others have heard it. And... um, that the music is being continuously conveyed. Our, our little uh, Oxford friend is uh, coming right along. Um, you know, in this little poem, uh, we don't see um, our little friend saying, Oh, there it is. I saw it now. Do you notice? That's not what it says. Uh, Presumably, the nightingale's song was audible all along. Uh, So now our friend is saying, Oh, I hear it. Right along, there was warm sun, 
gentle breeze all along. And now it's um, its majestic face is somehow uh, intimately present in a way that well, we don't say it wasn't before, but was not appreciated. So, as um, as uh, T. S. Eliot reminds us, the end of all our searching is to be home once again and to recognize it for the first time. And I think um, our uh, little Oxford is describing that nicely. Uh, no ox can hide here. In um, the uh, Baljing Sanmeka, the song of the jewel mirror Samadhi, were warned that to uh, try to depict it in a literary way stains it. Now, it doesn't really stain it any more than you can stain the sky. But um, aesthetically, it's not quite right. Particularly in the uh, house of Tsaodong or Soto. The aesthetics are somewhat uh, refined and subtle. So, um, the gold standard, you might say, if there is such a thing, is silence. The silence, uh, a round silence that expresses reality completely. So there's a great deal of um, activity in silence. There's a great deal of cultivating stillness, just for its own sake. Dogen says, don't uh, practice the way for yourself. Don't practice the way for others, particularly. Practice the way for the way. And see what happens. So this uh, glimpsing um, is, uh, once again, in that uh, perhaps frustrating Zen way about not seeing. This is why the horns are so uh, majestic because uh, they're not within the confines of some ordinary horn. They're there too, but not only. And as the body awakens to... uh, The, uh, this inescapable truth, we call that glimpse. 
you know, sometimes it's, uh, again, as uh, the uh, Mir Samadhi song tells us, it's not actually within the reach of either feelings or consciousness. So you can't really think about it. You can't consider it in thought. Well, you can, but you're not actually considering it. You're thinking about something that can't be confined that way. That's okay, but don't mistake the two. And as the body uh, trembles to this um, subtle realization, we say there's a glimpse. How does that strike you? What do you actually mean by the body awakening? (laughs) The body, according to Dogen, is what awakens to the way. He says that quite specifically. Actually, the body awakens to the way. And given the uh, centrality of physical cultivation in Soto Zen, it's perhaps not surprising. But I think he's... uh, speaking perhaps to uh, part of his audience who uh, understood illumination as a kind of uh, uh, mental sunburst, sort of like a good kind of stroke. (laughs) And they're kind of waiting for that. And he's saying, "Uh, wait, the body awakens to the way. That doesn't exclude the mind. We don't do this uh, uh, Cartesian split thing in Asia so much. So yeah, and very often, uh, you know, in um, many expressions, uh, two um, very very common ones, uh, both Shinjin uh, Gakudo, which means body mind study way, or and of course the very very famous Shinjin Datsuraku, body mind fall away. And it's not really body and the mind. It's something called body-mind. Right? Which is all of us. Which is, our Which is a unity. Yeah. Correct. And reflects reality perfectly. Is, if you like, at least one horn of the ox. And the glimpse is as the body vibrates to this truth. So now, you may be looking around, is there any vibration going on here? Someplace. <laughs> but it's the whole body already vibrating. We're not waiting for some particular experience, as I warned from the outset. The uh, nightingale is already singing. Therefore, we sit practice. This is the real, real splendor of this way, this Buddha way. It's not really about acquisition. So uh, we have, you know, a few more days left, but 
um, I think like maybe Saturday there won't be a talk precisely. So um, I may just, you know, we may just go leaping ahead with our ox herd here. Uh, and um, uh, you, you know, you should put up a hand anytime and and say, wait, you know, we're going too fast. It doesn't actually matter if we don't get to number ten. We just be we might have a kind of a nice round feeling if we did, but if we don't, it's all right. At first, I had some some silly notion that we'd go from one to ten and then ten back to one, but I don't think we're going to have time for that. Anyway, uh, people are often uh, itching to get to number four, anyhow, which is catching the ox. Now here, this is very interesting. Here, our, our little Oxford says, I seize him with a titanic struggle. His great will and power inexhaustible. He charges up to a high meadow above the clouds and mist or stands stock still in a rugged valley. So I've been reflecting, uh, uh, contemplating, if you like, a bit on this uh, titanic struggle. And, uh, uh, you know, this is depicted in various ways in, in uh, human experience and in uh, Zen art, you know. You have uh, Bodhidharma, who was, uh, you know, supposedly troubled by sleepiness, as I certainly am sometimes, and who therefore just pulled his eyelids off so his eyes couldn't close anymore. Take all this with a big grain of salt, please, and flung them aside. And as you've probably heard, from them sprang up the tea plant. And that's where tea comes from. These were originally Bodhidharma's eyelids. And hence the uh, the uh, ability of tea to generate some wakefulness. And this is uh, you know evidence of this titanic struggle, or uh, Bodhidharma's um, disciple Datsueka, who uh, um, went to visit Bodhidharma in his cave and uh, you know, hi hello can I talk to you? you know, Bodhidharma supposedly was ignoring him, so he just chopped off his hand. Handed it. See, see how serious I am. <laughs> Personally, I think uh, if indeed that happened, which I tend to doubt, Bodhidharma said, "Okay, this guy is bats. I better, I better take special <laughs> care, or he's going to cut off the other hand." So, um, as I tell the story to myself, I think probably Waka did have one hand, but he uh, lost one hand in a accident with a millstone as a child. But he did uh, demonstrate his, uh, his, uh, uh, ex- his great, his extreme resolution to Bodhidharma so that Bodhidharma felt like uh, inviting him to study. So there's this uh, notion of titanic struggle. Um, but uh, uh, the titanic struggle, you know, uh, looks more and more and more like this.
And seizing the ox is really more like being seized by the ox. And bouncing along with him, should he choose to be in a high, misty valley in the mountains or a deep, dark ravine. Some uh, translations, um, this one, in fact, uh, actually was saying bull instead of ox. Um, I think to uh, you know up the uh, dramatic ante, uh, reminding us more of um, the ghastly Spanish national pastime, bull fighting, um, rather than uh, relating to the generally rather placid water buffalo, whom you often see uh, still in Asia to this day in the company of a small child. who's able to lead this enormous creature around, who's like, you know, outweighs the kid by ten times or more. And uh, uh, the the child, you know, washes the buffalo and feeds it and leads it around, takes care of it and sleeps on it sometimes when the the ox is lying down. Kids just... So this this enormous, terrible, fierce creature is... um, gentle by nature. So the titanic struggle is uh, like, uh, as we said before, parting the grass and facing into the wind. Uh, uh, Meeting the, uh, the You call that in the ocean when the currents are all mixed up? Something like that. It's, uh, it's difficult for sailors, you know, because sometimes all these currents are back and forth. Um, meeting those currents with our own still heart and body. This is the titanic struggle. Now, uh, some people approach that from the side of uh, uh, muscular exertion. So you had these stories of uh, people who, uh, you know, attend a, a session and sit all night long every night until they enter, enter a uh, some sort of adamantine concentration, a luminous samadhi. Either that or they collapse and have to be carted off to <laughs> loony bin. Um, and uh, this, is, this has its heroic properties, but the end is a kind of uh, giving up. Now, I, don't, I'm not, I am cautious not to make claims about my own practice, but um, there was a... Uh, uh, time at the San Francisco Zen Center where this uh, um, the Titanic struggle was presented somewhat in these terms in spite of the fact that uh, San Francisco Zen Center was conceived 
was presented to us by Shinryu Suzuki Roshi as a temple of the house of Saotong, the house of Soto. Nonetheless, some of this other stuff crept in. So my first winter at Tasahara, I was making a titanic struggle, sitting up late in the zendo and then creeping off to the office, which was freezing cold, even colder than the zendo, and sitting up for hours, grappling with the koan mu. You know, you, uh, I don't know, you may be familiar with that approach, but you... The entire focus of your your intensity is that one syllable, mu, or in Chinese, wu, which, as you've probably heard, means not. Um, you know that story, right? The, uh, uh, the story of Master Zhao Zhou? It's very, very famous, right? No? Yes, that's one knows. <laughs> you know, a monk asks Master Zhao Zhou, Hey, does, does a, you know, a dog have a Buddha nature? And Zhao Zhou says, no. <laughs> Which you know, flew in the face of um, uh, a, a cherished East Asian, in particular East Asian notion that all beings have Buddha nature. And Zhao Zhou says, no. Uh, uh, now, interestingly, in the Tsaodong collection of stories, that story goes on and says, another time, a monk said, so... Does a dog have a Buddha nature? And Jojo says, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> no one was going to pin him down. <clears throat> anyway, uh, a lot of people like that no. So uh, the no, the mu, is given as a uh, focus of intense effort and concentration. And uh, uh, oftentimes the uh, progress is gauged. You know, you go to the teacher and the teacher will say, let me hear your mu. So you go, Teacher will go. No, no good. Go back. Try again. <coughs> is, is there that water? I think that pitcher got away. Sorry to disturb you. <coughs> Seem to have a little scratchy throat these days. Thank you very much. Thanks. Very kind. Anyway, I did that for a while because uh, the then abbot thought that that was kind of a cool thing to do, so I did that for a while, and. Thank you. At some point, um, I kind of, I kind of gave up. You know, my, my, uh, what did it say? Strength failing, vitality exhausted. <laughs> I sort of gave up. And at first, it was very discouraging because I felt like I'm giving up. Oh no, I will never seize the ox. <clears throat> and then I, I, I. Uh, it's like with my peripheral experience. There was a kind of peace that I had never known was there. So, so one style is to generate tremendous tension and then allow for a, uh, a provoking event of any kind to sort of pop that bubble. And then in the flowing away of that, that tension, the, the, the illusory nature of the boundary between self and other between person and universe is perceived or experienced as such. So, um, uh, as I said before, we, we don't denigrate or eschew such things, but we don't seek out that scenario. Okay, is that more or less clear, the distinction I'm making? 
Um, for us, uh, seizing the ox looks more like I just demonstrated. The titanic struggle is a struggle in stillness with no uh, opponents. Simply uh, presenting ourselves to the universe in stillness is a kind of struggle, as I think it's probably on some level or other familiar uh, to uh, practitioners of this way. It's not so easy. Right? Um, I forget what day it is today, but um, yesterday I was thinking, oh, I'm kind of having a hard time. <laughs> um, periodically, something reminds me that I'm not in my 30s anymore, or 40s, barely any 50s left, and uh, some things are kind of hard now. So, um, uh, the uh, challenge then, in, in the midst of such a perception, would be uh, that um, uh, the effort made not become too sticky. I was talking to somebody yesterday about the tendency, the, 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 the mind, if you like, is sticky. So anything that comes in range will stick. And then the skill of the practitioner is in, as, uh, as uh, I believe Ramdas put it, the quicker something comes up, the quicker you let it go. This is kind of the art of the practitioner. So this is the titanic struggle, and um, uh, uh, from our point of view, its drama is silent and still and does not um, uh, involve um, a ox, an ox herd and an ox outside of us. does not. It, uh, feel free to uh, object. You know, I say, I think that's wrong, Reverend. No, it's, it's all right. Um, anyway, I'm just speaking from my experience now. Um, so we can continue unless some people would rather again please you know, raise a hand or make a comment anytime if you like yes please yes oh uh, reality reality truth Buddha nature Buddha mind awakening something various uh Little signs have been hung around the ox's patient, unprotesting, unprotesting neck over the centuries. Um, but usually, it's thought of as something like, "Yeah, you know, awakening." Or, anyway, something really great. So. Um, Um, the uh, the metaphor here is maybe uh, somehow the oxherd has gotten a rope on this creature who is now dragging him all over the countryside. Um, um, I think uh, for many practitioners, the experience is one of uh, as one becomes acquainted with the reality of this body-mind, that uh, particularly at first, 
Well, it's kind of a hit or miss, you know. And um, uh, some days or times we feel like, okay, I'm, I'm on. Today I'm really on. And other days, oh, no, I'm off. I'm terribly off. This is, this is uh, one way to uh, understand the ox charging around from, from place to place, whereas we want it to be right there with us um, in our office at our desk and not charging off some other place where we have to go look for it. Right? So um, there's uh, a, a, a um, I guess you could say a period, although maybe I said already, these ten uh, phenomenal expressions of practice are all actually all happen at once. There, this is not a linear um, progression. So, so uh, this taming um, uh, is the expanding of our experience of this uh, great presence. So that, as uh, we've also been saying, um, it's not dependent on a particular set of circumstances. And uh, as I've been talking to some people, it's important to realize that uh, uh, even when we know always where the ox is, the way our life our body-mind may be manifesting in a given set of circumstances may not necessarily be to our liking. In, in difficult circumstances, things may feel difficult. And yet, we may not be, as I said to somebody, confused. It's one thing to feel like, ooh, this is kind of hard. And it's another thing to feel like, this is kind of hard and I'm... I'm at a loss. Reality has de- defeated me, and Buddha has gone away. You know, it's fine to have those thoughts, even as long as one isn't led astray by them. That would be thinking that the ox has just dragged us off into uh, Cornwall. Mm-hmm. By the way, I have nothing against Cornwall. <laughs> I have. <laughs> I've mentioned it several times, only because I'd actually really want to visit sometime. Someday I'd love to visit Cornwall. So uh, 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 taming is, as much as anything, becoming acquainted with um, the various behaviors, all of which are, are, are inner behaviors, are inner experiences in the context of practice, all of which are uh, encompassed by the life of the ox, such that in all circumstances we find our feet, even if, well, maybe we don't feel so good, but we have our feet. Do you, do you see the distinction I'm making? Because it's very easy to start thinking that, um, you know, uh, once the ox is securely in hand, one's uh, inner landscape will always look like Devon in April. Oh, isn't this lovely? It's always going to feel like that. That's not so. Just look at the actual lives of actual practitioners, and you, you will see that they have their feet. 
But sometimes things get kind of rough. Even great practitioners can make significant mistakes. Let's face it. You know, anyone can fall down. And, and uh, uh, this is curious, you'd like to quote this old Zen saying, which you probably heard, the ground where you fall down is where you get up. You don't fall down here and get up over there. So the, the, the experience of searching for the ox, seeing the tracks and so forth, happens in that instant of falling and standing up. Um, uh, Jack Cornfield, who I'm sure some of you know perhaps quite well, is he, is he visited here? Jack Corn- no, he hasn't yet. He's, I guess, the, like the Western Vipassana gang, and then you got the European Vipassana gang. Actually, even in the States, I think there's an East Coast Vipassana gang and a Left Coast, uh, and he's on the left. Anyway, he told this marvelous story uh, once, um, which was very significant to me in humanizing uh, our experience and understanding of practitioners of all kinds, all levels. He said uh, he was a monk in, in Thailand, as you know, for quite a while. And one day, he was uh, hanging about the monastery, and he happened to notice that uh, a very, very celebrated uh, teacher who uh, had uh, pretty much uniformly the reputation of having a achieved arhatship, was in the little kitchen area. And uh, so, so, so Jack was just kind of watching, you know, not exactly spying on him, but he was far enough away that uh, he wasn't in the, um, the circle of awareness of this uh, gentleman. And the, the fellow was doing something with the kitchen, uh, with some food, and um, uh, from one side, one of the local dogs kind of crept in, kind of, you know, looking for a scrap. And Jack said, um, Reverend Arhat saw the dog, looked around a little bit, and then hauled off and kicked it right out of the kitchen. And Jack said, now that's interesting. Do Arhats kick dogs out of kitchens? Like, hmm, that's a little funny. So suddenly, it's like the universe of, of human experience, human practice, expanded to include... Arhats who kick dogs. You know? It's like, gosh, that really is our life. Now, I don't think I don't think Jack went up to him and said, "Excuse me, Reverend, that was no, no, that was very bad." <laughs> um, but uh, he did. He he said it did. Uh, it was a, 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 a startling adjustment of uh, his uh, kind of um, rather uh, inflated view of even very advanced practitioners. They've somehow left the human sphere, you know, and never to return. But by golly, they still kick dogs sometimes. You know, this is all very strange. And yet it all makes it so uh, delightfully human, so part of our actual ongoing experience in life. Not that we are going to climb to some remote peak and stay there floating above it all. Um, there are some people who kind of cultivate that experience and and then... Sometimes circumstances oblige them to re-enter the marketplace, <clears throat> and then to their surprise, they have some difficulty. There's dogs and things around to be dealt with. So um, um, I guess some people maybe heard this story and found it discouraging. I found it tremendously encouraging. 
to realize that uh, our sphere of practice expands and expands and expands and includes all manner of persons and traditions and efforts and doesn't mean that parts of our humanity are, um, you know, uh, surgically removed. So, uh, anyway, this was good news to me. And <clears throat> taming has to do with this, this uh, sensitive, compassionate, non-grasping monitoring of our interface with the world, the inner world and the outer world, knowing that we always have our feet. And from that basis, meeting and engaging with circumstance and with other beings. Sometimes that may look pretty good, sometimes not. Sometimes elegant, sometimes inelegant. Sometimes so inelegant, you have to apologize to a bunch of people. It's like, sorry, I messed up. And if you can't do that, because, I don't know, you're a teacher or something, there may be a little problem. You, know? you may be unwilling to just find your feet in the midst of having offended or hurt some people and not being able to say, oh, that wasn't so good. Instead, having the only option being, well, that's their problem because they're, you know, not enlightened. Too bad for them. <laughs> and this does happen, so I'm sure you know. It's not so good, you know. So uh, whip and rope are needed, lest our water buffalo wander off down some dusty path. (coughs) It says here, once well trained, his nature is gentle. Then unbound, he obeys the master. So whip and rope are merely manifestations of attention and intention to practice. Um, uh, even if one has some, uh, <clears throat> pardon, a great and, and exciting and transforming experience, the temptation then is sometimes to say, oh, cool, I've arrived. You know, never mind that uh, whip and rope stuff. As I, maybe I already mentioned uh, a certain um, practitioner whom I knew in former years and uh, rose to a high position in the practice community, um, told another rather advanced practitioner of his acquaintance uh, when they were discussing um, norms of behavior, uh, social and sexual norms of behavior, said, oh, those rules don't apply to us anymore. It's like, Oh, that was a mistake. This is like um, uh, throwing aside the whip and the rope inappropriately. Um, uh, abandoning attention and intention because one, one feels that uh, one's uh, uh, illumination is thorough, sufficient, and permanent. In spite of Dogen saying so beautifully in... Um, the Ginjo Koan, uh, when Dharma fills your body and mind, fills your body and mind, you notice something is missing. It's a beautiful way to put it. 
right before that he says, before dharma fills your body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. It's when it fills you completely, you notice, oh, I could do, I could make a little more effort. I could do a little more. There's still more I can do. says, once well-trained, his nature is gentle. But I think his nature is pretty gentle anyway. It's sort of like uh, telling someone <coughs> the, um, uh, in the Tibetan pantheon, the, you know, the wrathful and, and uh, peaceful manifestations are of the same entities, viewed from the point of view of attachment, they're wrathful. View from the point of view of the, the settled heart, they're peaceful. So, if the bull seems to be ferocious, that's from the point of view of um, something to be caught and trapped and mastered. If the, uh, as I tend to see it, it's more like the water buffalo, peacefully plodding along behind the six-year-old girl. This is from the place of peace. Does it make any sense here? Again, please object if, if you wish. So, so this is great. We're already uh, at number five. We're halfway through. It's 11.04. What is today? Today is... Uh, Tuesday, so we have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Is that all? Mm-hmm. We only have Wednesday. Can you believe that? We got like just three days left, and then a little bit of a chunk of Saturday. So um, I don't know if you, you noticed this. Some of you, as I said, are very experienced, but there's usually a point in a session where the time just starts to accelerate, and at some point you sort of where did the days go? Usually, first uh, one, two, three days, four days, you're like, oh my God, this is killing me. And then all of a sudden, it's over. It's quite amazing. It shows how subjective time is in our experience. Thoroughly subjective. Will we spend a long time on number eight, though? Number eight, (laughs) self and ox forgotten. We could skip that one, actually. Let's see if we we can get there. <clears throat> anyway, first we have riding. Oh yes, please. Yes. Yes. Me too. Good, yes. 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 The practice of stillness um, alone mm-hmm. tends to become dry. Mm-hmm. Either full of trying, trying, no great effort, mm-hmm. trying, mm-hmm. or actually sleeping 
kind of dullness or Talking about mostly sitting practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The washing up, I'm okay. Actually. Washing up. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, well, uh, is so it? Yes. Yes. Um, I, I guess I would uh, suggest that. Um, This disappearance of vitality is a mere appearance, and that uh, as this practice has been presented to us, uh, uh, it is boundlessly vital all the time. And if we are not experiencing it that way, then maybe our attitude is in need of a slight adjustment. As, uh, you know, Suzuki was very, very uh, insistent and specific about the attitude with which we approach Sazen. And he, he, you know, there was that famous occasion where he said, <clears throat> I think um, all of us should leave the Zendo and come back in again, having left all of that baggage outside. So, <clears throat> Whether zazen is appearing to be uh, something with vitality or not um, is met with the same sort of upright, calm heart so that these fluctuations don't delude us into thinking that that's what's really going on. My teacher likes to say... Uh, you know, tell people who complain, well, this, you know, um, boy, this is really, like, boring, or I'm, I'm in the session and I'm just bored to tears, you know. And he often says, well, I guess you're not really paying attention to what's going on, because what's going on is endlessly fascinating. So, um, uh, I would say that the vitality, all the vitality any of us needs is there all the time. And if it doesn't appear to be so then some little adjustment is necessary, some little way in which we had have some notion of how vitality looks and feels, and that's what we're after. Rather than presenting this entire body-mind to the universe, moment after moment, regardless, and letting the verification manifest through that, so I don't know, uh, the other day, or yesterday I guess it was, you know, I'm practically falling off my Zafu up here. You know, it's, just, you know, it's kind of unpleasant. And at one time, it was very discouraging to notice that I was, you know, 
Well, it's not upright sitting, Reverend. <laughs> I was so sleepy and tired, I just couldn't sit up. But um, I no longer feel like that's a defeat. I no longer feel like that's uh, a real problem. I know that sooner or later, the opposite will be the case. Namely, I'll be awake and upright and still. And I don't want to reject the one and attach to the other. I don't want to make one the standard and the other the failure. Um, this, this is the way that invites our attitude towards practice to constantly expand. So then sometimes people say, well, does that mean you know, everything's all right? Well, kind of. But then if you say everything's all right, where is your effort? What's our effort then? If everything's all right, what's our effort? This is, if you like, kind of our koan, our point of study. What's my effort if I'm feeling like uh, there's no vitality in my sitting? If uh, I just want to go, you know, crawl under the nearest bush and lie there for an hour, you know? What's where's my effort? What's my attitude? Is, is there any grasping in my practice, or can I let this body mind as it is right now? represent reality completely. Even if I don't really like what's going on, what if I'm ill, what if I'm injured, what if I'm frightened, what if I'm hungry? Does that, are all of these ducks that I have to get in a row before I can practice? So do you get at all what I'm, I'm getting at? I realize it's, it's a bit subtle, but that's no, no. the point. I mean, Yes, <laughs> I, know, I talked too much. I knew it. I knew it. Yes. 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 show up, do you show up completely regardless of circumstance? Yeah. Seems like you do. Kind of looks like you do. I, I, I need to get some people to call me every so Oh, I see. Yes. Well, there's the Sangha Jewel. <laughs> well, um, we could go on talking all day, but um, there is, you know, uh, this um, uh, one of the spiritual metaphors from the Western side, which is often neglected, you know, and, and particularly when I was a young fellow and everything East was great and everything West was ridiculous. Um, there is this notion of uh, entering the desert, which you probably heard uh, in Western spirituality, where um, uh, the process of refinement in, in spiritual life mostly involves losing things. Uh, as though one were, were going on this journey and every little while, one of the cool things one brought with one, one drops. Until finally one has nothing. And one looks around and everything is sand and rock. 
Now, this also is a mere appearance, but it's a rather powerful one. And um, uh, it's well known, in, in the, in the, particularly in the Western canon, that one must stay in the desert until one is led out by the Spirit. So if one enters the desert and fusses, it's going to be a long time. One has to accept that the Spirit will lead us out um, and, and not try to set some timetable on that. One has to sit down in the sand and, and take our position. So this, this notion uh, that there is spiritual dryness is well-known, well-established, and it can be quite difficult. My mother Teresa, of all people, I don't know, you know, recently she published, well, not she published, but somebody published uh, some memoirs or letters of hers. She was an interesting lady, no matter how you look at it. But, uh, uh, you know, her, her entry into spiritual life and practice was, was rather dramatic in, in terms of what uh, in Roman spirituality is called uh, lights and consolations. In other words, she was visited with, you know, bliss and feelings of love and fluttering wings. And this went on for quite some time. And then it stopped. And she was devastated. And she was quite young when it stopped. It lasted, I think, some months. And then it stopped. And she felt like for a long time that God had abandoned her. This was a very, very tough time for her. This was the desert. However, she went on practicing and did an awful lot of very great things in her life. And uh, as she was, uh, you know, in, in her later years, people would come to her and ask about prayer and so forth. And one, one chap came to her and said, um, you know, I... I, uh, you know, I took up contemplative prayer, and it was so wonderful. You know, it was really sweet and nourishing, and and then it wasn't, and you know, it hasn't been since then. And I must be doing something wrong. And she said, Ah, yes. How, how long has it been? He said, Well, it's been about uh, eleven months now. And she said, hmm. Yes, with me, it's been thirty-eight years. <laughs> So, uh, so you could say, my God, was she in the desert for 38 years? I don't think she'd put it that way. She would say, what I thought was the desert was revealed to be something else, finally. But that experience of dryness was powerful and compelling. So I don't want to go too far afield here, but the... the, the uh, uh, Generous-hearted response to dryness is to be still in the midst thereof, to be still in the desert, to to live in the desert until spirit leads us out. So I don't want to over-dramatize what you're talking about, but these are the sorts of thoughts I have in the dead of night. <laughs> well, um, my poor little old legs are complaining bitterly, so maybe uh, it's enough for now. Uh, where do we stop? Uh, are we writing? Oh, uh, well, you should at least read that because this is a great verse. Climbing the ox's broad back, I ride slowly homeward. The sound of my flute echoes 
through the evening. Clapping hands to the pulsing harmony, I keep time to the ancient rhythm. Whoever hears this music joins right in. So maybe let's stop there. Thank you very much. May our intention equally extend to every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it.